0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Real Rant, the place where we like to rant about the real stuff. My name is Brendan McGee, and sitting across from me, as always, is the illustrious Sexy Boy.
1: Who are you, dude? Corey McEwen McGregor. I really like that one Yes
0: I think that nice. one's my favorite so far That's amazing I did ask you before the show mm-hmm. uh, What your what
1: your new call sign is going to be Because mm-hmm. you have to have a new one now every single week I feel It's like. true And I think I've kind of dug myself into a hole Because eventually I'm going to run out oh. But I'm, I'm going to try and get as creative as possible Our guest is shaking his head on that one Don't We definitely
0: think that you're creative enough To be able to pull something out of your butt
1: Well I mean I can pull stuff out of my butt But <laughs> creative names maybe not too much Yeah probably not Yeah so, as always, we have a guest, and he's to the right of me and to the left of me. And you know what, Brendan? Before you go any further, well, I'm going to stop you right there. Well, you... Because... Well, you wanted to intro him this week. Exactly.
0: And uh, and I said, are you sure? Can uh-huh. you handle it? Uh-huh. Can you take the reins of the
1: stagecoach? I can. Yeah? I can. Okay. And, you know, I'm only doing this because I have a very particular thing about doing shows with someone I may not know. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to spend the next two hours locked up in a room with this guy, mm-hmm. I want to know who he is. So, you, mister, who are you?
2: Uh, my name is Jesse James. I am uh, the podcast host's uh, younger brother, Brendan, and an uh, mm. old friend of Corey's. That mm. was a um, that was a very good
0: uh, reference to the film that we watched this week. Yeah. So, Jesse, how you doing, dude? I'm a little tired from work. Yeah. yeah. How are you guys? Well, we've talked a lot about you, actually, on this podcast here and, here and there, and uh, we haven't yet had you on, but I felt, you know what? It's the Christmas episode. What better way to give a present to somebody this year that you feel and love enough than your brother? <laughs> and it's also another way to get out of giving a Christmas present, so... Uh, I don't think so. Uh, well, joke's on you. I actually got you one, so... That Whoa. was all. Joke's on you. I didn't get you. <laughs> oh. Oh, <snap>. gosh. <laughs> no, I got you something. But Jesse, he lives down the hall from all of us. Mm-hmm. Well not Down the, the hall and to the left. Down the hall and to the left. Uh, he's a pretty cool cat, and he owns a cat. So Yeah, he does. He I work. forget
1: that quite often. But uh... Yeah,
0: we all kind of seem to forget, and the only reason why we know that she's there is when she comes out at the middle of, like, 4 o'clock in the morning and starts Ding! whining because she's hungry. At really unreasonable times. Or when there's a really smelly poop in the house.
1: Mm.
0: And I'll be honest yes, with you. definitely the cat. It's weird. Like, we all use the restroom in the house.
1: It's usually she just
0: doesn't bury it. Yeah. We all use the restroom in the house, but the one that seems to stink
2: it up the most is the cat. Mm-hmm. Would you agree, Jesse? Oh, absolutely. 100%. <laughs> it is like... When she's angry, she doesn't like to bury them. <laughs> She'd just, like, go in there and walk out and strut her stuff and just... Just be really proud of what she did to you. (laughs) course, It's kind of scary. Sometimes we'll come home and we'll just be like, what was that? (laughs) So, Corey,
0: we've decided to change up the show a little bit. Mm -hmm. We used to have a segment called How You Doing, Dude? It's true.
1: We've decided to what now, Corey? Uh, We've decided to kind of get rid of that. Uh, Yeah. Because it it just hasn't really worked, to be honest. Um, It worked in the beginning when
0: we first started the show. Sure. When we were doing like our early recordings. And I think that a part of us just kind of wanted to hold on to it. But yeah. You know, so, the show evolves. Okay? Yeah, it does. It does. Mm-hmm. And a good segue. The show is evolving. Mm-hmm. So in replace of that segment, to take up less time, we're doing a new segment called Housekeeping! Housekeeping! And that's where we will essentially just talk about, you know, things about the show and what's to come and the next episode and stuff like that. So this is our time to kind of shine and tell people, you know, what's coming up and what's happening. I did want to ha- start off housekeeping with the fact that people are actually starting to take an interest in us a little bit, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Um, I never personally really considered the idea of what it means to be a creator. I mean, Corey, you and I have been kind of doing, you know, certain projects for our own, you know, liking and uh, for other, for you know, our friends and stuff like that for the past, you know seven eight years now but we've never really Mm -hmm. thought about you know getting our voices out there to this extent and now that we've kind of done it it's it's a little bit it's really exciting but at the same time it's a little bit overwhelming because you don't really know what you're actually doing right sure at times and and what what you can do to help yourself out more or what you're not doing that could potentially do you know better you could help you out even more than that so Mm -hmm. it's really just you're just shooting in the dark it's yeah. uh, to fit in with the whole cowboy reference of the week mm-hmm. and stuff like that, but it's fun nonetheless. And uh, we're really excited to see where this kind of this show kind of goes in the new year. Um, as we said last week, we're looking at getting new equipment, so that's another piece that we can add to the housekeeping list. Mm-hmm. Um, tomorrow, Corey, you, you and I are going to be sitting down having a nice our first real rant podcast meeting.
1: Yeah, that's true. We're uh, we're going to sit down, talk about logistics, and where we think we're going to take.
0: The show the show
1: yeah. uh and like you said talking about getting new equipment uh come the new year probably a boxing day sale or two we'll hit up and yeah for sure try and add a little bit more professionalism to this like we said in the first episode we're
0: professionals at trying to become professionals yes i would say that how would you agree with that jesse
2: i think you guys have a lot of structure but i think you guys got the right heart and soul for it so just keep marching to that drum wow I've never been more inspired. Strong yeah.
0: words. I Strong felt words. I felt a little bit of a tingle in my toes. Mm. Aside from that, but I just wanted to say, kind of, you know, how excited we are about to see where this kind of show can go. Because again, like we we really had no idea where this whole thing would go. We just kind of were like, yeah, we'll we'll give it a shot and see what happens. You know, mm-hmm. we've got a year lease on the our website. You know, we've we've kept it up so far, and I feel yeah. like we we owe ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back. But um, Corey patted himself on the back. He did. Uh so yeah man it's uh it's pretty exciting. I'm glad that we decided to kind of just make it all happen and put it out there. Yeah. Um but for the next thing, I wanted to mention next week's episode. Next week's episode for our uh New Year's episode actually that we will be releasing uh on the 2nd, I believe. So it's not really a New Year's Day episode or anything like that, but it's within the week. It'll be the first one of the new year. Yeah. So. Uh we're doing goodwill hunting.
1: Yeah. How do you like them apples? Yeah nice oh i get it it's a Aha, reference to the movie yeah. okay yeah yeah originally
0: this guy who's coming on and it is a guy was supposed to do the my neighbor totoro episode and then unfortunately i was sick so we couldn't make that happen now he's decided that um emily who was on a red line episode uh he was quite intimidated by her ability to discuss anime so he decided to go with a different film this oh, week. oh really i didn't know that was the reason yeah i mean he didn't really outright say i'm a i'm a little bit intimidated but he was just kind of like you know
1: So you're just assuming he was intimidated. Yeah,
0: well, it came off that way in our messaging, so. He was like, you know, Emily can talk more about Studio Ghibli stuff better than I can, so I'll probably just leave that, you know, for her. So, yeah, next week is Goodwill Hunting, but this week, for our Christmas episode, we decided to go with The Hateful Eight, Mm -hmm. which is actually quite Christmassy, believe it or not. They play Christmas music in the film. There's lots of red. There's lots of red. Mm -hmm. My goodness. And lots of white. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There's mountains and snow, and uh-huh. there isn't sleigh rides, but there's stagecoach rides. Rides, sure. And the film came out December 25th, 2015. So there we go, kind of fitting in with the times a little bit. Mm-hmm. And also, I don't know if you notice this, Corey, but the film we're doing is called The Hateful Eight. But this is also our eighth episode. Oh my gosh. Inception. What the heck? With that, as we said, we're changing up the show a little bit. I'm giving a section of the show to Corey. Which, again, I asked him, hey, here's a present, take it, see what you can do with it. Unwrap it. Unwrap it. Yeah. Give it a kiss. Mm-hmm. And see what happens. So, Corey,
1: what is this, what is the new segment of the show called? Well, the new segment of the show is the news segment of the show. Uh, I haven't thought of a clever name for it yet, so as of right now, it's just news. News with Corey? News. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> So, Corey, yeah, give us some news. Throw this right. right, at us, quick All and right. hot, fast and yeah, yeah. First article, and I, th- I believe only article for today, yeah, uh, is going to be a possible revival of the television show, uh, world renowned, uh, The Office. But one glaring problem with that, what is it, Corey? Is if they do happen to renew it, Michael Scott will be not involved. Well, and I mean, I don't think that makes any sense to me. They were going to do a spin-off called Stroot Farms actually with oh. the,
0: with Rain Wilson. Mm-hmm. I was kind of looking forward to that a little bit to be honest with you, because they had Thomas Middleditch in it, who's also from BC from where we're at. okay he, He's from Nelson BC okay uh, which was kind of exciting, but I mean obviously that didn't fall through it didn't do too well, but in the uh, early stages of productions, I guess uh, early screenings didn't you know catch the eye of the consumers. Hmm. So unfortunately it was n- a no- go
1: on there. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that makes sense cuz for me personally, the the office is Steve Carell is the best character, um and everyone else is perfect as a side character. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. It, it, like the same thing for when Joey had his own spin-off in friends. Yeah. Whereas like I don't think any one character can maybe hold their own show.
0: Well, I don't know, I don't...
1: man. Like I think that if you get into the later
0: seasons of The Office cuz I've watched it mm-hmm. numerous times and so has Jesse and I haven't seen it all the way through so maybe I'm not the best judge but um but we've watched it like numerous times through and if you get into the later seasons especially during like Pam and Jim's wedding Michael's kind of like a background character okay who adds a little bit of comic relief here and there but they focus a lot later on in the seasons uh to do with a lot with um You know, other relationships in the show.
2: They make it more about a mockumentary about everyone in the office rather than just Michael Scott. Michael as the center core. Okay. Because, like, originally they focused on him in the first season as the spotlight was on this guy. Yeah. Uh, And and then it just, the other characters started merging more and writers started adding more depth to people and it, it got just way more in tune with what the audience wanted as well.
0: Yeah. And I think, I don't know, it's just, it's, quite exciting to hear the possibility of them bringing it back but i'm just not 100 percent sure where it'll go because i think if you're gonna bring it back then bring back obviously bring back dwight jim and um pam but i don't even think i think the care uh john krasinski the guy who plays jim he's actually got a new show that he's working on right now called he's doing uh jack reacher i think for amazon prime right now so i, I don't think I wonder if that would even be a possibility for him. But again, it's only in talks over at ABC right now, so we don't we don't really know what will happen. So, yeah. But it's exciting, nonetheless. But also not exciting, because who knows what will happen. <laughs> yeah. I just don't want a really boring Office revival. Like, if you're going to do it, do it well. Um, and if you're going to do it, bring back, like, all the writers from the original. Sure. Because yeah. that's it, what saved that show in its later seasons. Like, after... Um, Steve Carell left was the writers, I would say. Mm-hmm. So, how do you think about that, Jesse? You've got a special connection with The Office.
2: Uh, I mean, someone who's seen The Office uh, all the way through at least 10 or 12 times, uh, I really don't think they should reboot it in any form whatsoever. I think that the way that they wrapped it up, they spent the entire last season basically hinting at the fact that, hey, this is a mockumentary. Hey, we're ending this. Hey, this is it. Um, and then, bam, the end, they had Michael come back. Uh, and they they wrapped it up in what in how they could. Of course it would have been better if uh Steve Carell could have stayed on, but yeah, I don't think they should they should not reboot any form mm. of it. One last thing,
0: it's not we just feel I just feel like we need to mention it before we get into mm. uh what you're watching. We didn't mention it last week because we spent a lot of time on the Star Wars stuff, but we figured we should mention it because we want to let people know at this point that we're aware as being superhero fans at least for myself and cory hates it so you know. I... <laughs> no well it's a running joke on the show that i tell cory that he hates marvel and superheroes it's true i do both <laughs> usually i'm waiting for you to correct me on that one but i feel like no, you're kind of burnt I'm, out on i'm it. giving in no <laughs> it's all terrible <laughs> um but no uh disney acquired a lot of properties in regards to fox 21st century fox so much um they acquired pretty much everything under the sun mm-hmm. things that are actually not even a part of the sh- like that aren't even actually at all could even be revived like for instance like um romancing in the stone i don't know if you've ever seen that
1: <laughs> yeah i have uh,
0: uh with um who is it michael douglas michael douglas yeah. and i forgot the actress name i can't remember it was like to be continued yeah, that film was basically... It's a great film, mm-hmm. but it's like a combo between Indiana Jones and The Princess Bride, almost.
1: Yeah, that's actually a pretty good uh, yeah. combination there.
0: Yeah, it was It was a good film. I remember watching it when I was a kid um, and thinking it was quite cool. But there was a lot of vines and jungle stuff. Hmm. More than I would say than tunnel templing with Indiana Jonesy. With that, we're moving into the next segment of the show. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. Would you say it's exciting, Corey? Oh, boy. So... <laughs> I mean it's not super exciting, but it's oh, exciting okay. nonetheless.
1: So, we're going to start
0: asking people, Jesse, what you watching? Because that's the part of the show. Mhm. And so yeah, Jesse, what are you watching right now? Is there anything you've watched, anything worth of note or anything you want to watch?
2: Um, I wanted to get back into The Crown. I forgot that it had its season 2.
0: Jesse tell, really tell us it. what The
2: Crown is. Crown is basically how uh Queen Elizabeth her majesty Queen Elizabeth the oh, yes. second came to, use to, use her... to reign. Um, and was anointed anointed queen uh, back in the, I think, f- oh, geez, was it? it was just uh, after just, the war. Just right after the war. It's so like the early 50s uh, when her father passed away uh, due to lunk uh, complications. Rest in peace. Yes, rest in peace is king. It's great. It's very dramatic, and it's my favorite show on Netflix besides House of Cards. But haven't gotten back into that, what I have been watching is just a lot of Stephen Colbert, mm. uh, which is a uh, great comedic relief and... He's just adorable on screen, and he's he's very uh, cute. He's very cute. He's a re- I really like his new character that he portrays as Stephen Colbert. It's he's uh, as the talk show host. He's a he's a funny guy, and they cover a lot of political jokes about Trump. It's mostly joking at Trump now. That's pretty much their entire mm-hmm. coverage. Um, but it's how they're making their money. So why stop, right? Well, I mean, there, okay. is,
1: there is a lot of content there. So there's yeah. a
2: lot of content yeah. there.
1: Yeah, Corey. Yeah, what are you watching, boy? Well. Star let's Wars see uh, i just started watching the punisher did you it, the Burnthal punisher yeah you actually just started watching it i watched the first episode what did you think i thought it was pretty good was interesting um, yeah um i'm not too familiar with the other punisher movies uh, oh man the uh they're all so good uh, the uh what's what's who's that guy from the it's uh, Tom Jane Tom Jane There's or the the Ray Stevenson Ray Stevenson not, or not quite familiar. or Dol- Dolph Lundgren Oh sure Dolph Lundgren which you know not I own. haven't even watched that one though yeah, there you go but um he's you know it's pretty good uh he reminds me a lot of Shane from the Walking Dead but again that's just cuz he's John Bernthal Yeah, I, I, I don't think as as an actor he has too much range mm-hmm. like he reminds me a lot of the same character in every show or movie that he's in not yeah. to say that i don't like him but yeah. he's just not that like great of an actor i would say um but i think it has piqued my interest yeah and i'm definitely gonna continue watching the show well that's good yeah i would say you're probably right
0: to some extent with the whole he's a one note kind of guy mm-hmm. i think that also comes into the fact that he might also be being cast as characters who bring that acting essence of that reoccurring character or that character trope out of him more sure. um i think a lot of that just is like he it's cast in these roles that kind of bring out that you know piece of him yeah where rather he's not,
1: than like quite all there because
0: mm-hmm. i've seen him in other roles that are a little bit better mm-hmm. um and he's also been he's been in he's actually been in movies for like quite a long time oh, yeah, yeah hmm. he was in baby driver too Oh, yeah, that's right. I don't know what kind of ca- – I can't remember him a whole lot in that movie.
1: Yeah.
0: I just remember reading an article about him kind of talking about Kevin Spacey and how he's just a terrible person on set too.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. I actually saw an interview where John Bernthal was saying that Kevin Spacey was horrible to work with. Yeah, he I mean, was, and
0: he was saying that, like, I mean, well, this is after all the allegations and accusations kind of came out in mm-hmm. regards to Kevin Spacey and his firing from House of Cards. But um, he was like, well, as far as I know, you know, he's kind of a dink – but yeah, because he wasn't he was just really unprofessional and kind of just rude on set. Yeah. So,
1: OK. But yeah, besides that, not uh, not too much. Yeah. But uh, on the flip side, flippity flop. Flippity Brendan. Flop. Yeah, what's up, dude? What have you been watching lately?
0: Well, I actually because we're big Netflix fans, Netiflix. <laughs> I started watching the it was called Manhunt Unabomber. Oh, yeah. With uh, Sam Worthington. It's on Netflix. It's actually quite good. It's like an eight episode series. I'm pretty sure it's called Manhunt. It's called Manhunt colon Unabomber. So is ass- it
2: about the Unabomber? Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> but I'm assuming that I never the- would have guessed. Yeah, I thought I thought <laughs> I would have thought that I I think that the show is called Manhunt colon because at some point they're going to switch. It's going to be hunting like- for a man's colon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In the Unabomber's bomb. <laughs> no, I think that. Uh, I think the Unabomber, or the Manhunt Unabomber, the Manhunt colon, Mm -hmm. is meant to, you know, say that this show is going to probably be... going to be a series of different Manhunts. Yeah, Yeah. or, like, it's going to be an anthology series. But so far, it's actually, like, quite good. Okay. Yeah, no, Sam Worthington's actually quite good. He he plays that... I've been noticing a lot of these tropes within these characters that are being underestimated within their agencies that they're working for, especially in the FBI, where there's this trope where they play this character who's kind of, like... Very, you know, secluded into their work and almost very, um, I don't know how to put it, very internal like, and kind of awkward. Mm-hmm. And Sam Worthington in this show kind of reminds me at times as the character from Mindhunter. Okay. But I would say that Sam Worthington's character is a little bit more um, shy, I guess, with oh. his opinions and stuff like that. Okay. so, But I would say give the show a watch. It's actually quite good. Um, It's only eight episodes, so you wouldn't really have to worry about it a whole lot if you want to try and get through it. I think I did like three episodes yesterday while I was doing the laundry, so... Oh, wow. Took a long time to do laundry. Yeah. (laughs) Anything else? We watched another episode of Godless. Yeah, we did. A little update on that
1: show. Yeah. I'm still liking it a little bit. I'm not super crazy about it, but uh, it's... It's kind of weird because the first episode was really good. Yeah. Yeah. The second episode, I did nothing for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, The third was a bit more of an up. Uh, And then the most recent one, episode four, was again kind of like, "Eh, nothing's really going on. Yeah. There's no care for it. it, It's weird because the show, as far as I can tell,
0: is it's a character show, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of times there's not a lot going on to really kind of drive these characters and really kind of discover more about who they are. Because in the first episode, we really get a sense of, you know, okay, these are the characters and they're very individualized and things like that. But then when it comes to like, but then when it comes to like, you know, later on episodes, it's almost like there's no more development past that stage that was yeah. so intense in the first episode. And that's kind of bothering me a little bit. I mean, you get a little bit of jeff daniels a little bit more in the um newer episodes dan or the later episodes there's always like a really good you know jeff daniels scene the newest episode the episode four one that we had watched um the last scene was really kind of what really did the whole episode for me i don't know the whole episode was really kind of just didn't really need to happen there was just a lot of (laughs) stuff i just feel like a lot of stuff in this show there's things that are happening that aren't really necessary and it's Mm -hmm. almost like like, why are you spending this much time on these things when they don't really matter yeah. in the grand scheme of things? Like, It,
1: it almost seems like there's going to be a really huge event in the last episode. But there's nothing. But they kind of, like, like that idea is what they based the show off of. And yeah. they kind of built backwards from it. And they're yeah. like, they were like, I don't really know what to put in, so let's just put in some like stuff so that we have a, like, a run time to fill kind of thing.
0: Yeah. you know, I, That's a really interesting way to put it. And, I, and it's kind of scary because sometimes that's how a lot of films are actually developed is, like, from the end to the beginning and mm. that's okay you just have sure. to be able to do it properly and i would say films it's it's easier to do that with whereas mm. if you're doing an episodic show you're kind of it's almost like you're wasting people's time sure um i mean I, i'm not saying i'm not gonna try and finish it through at this point because we're there's only oh, i'm six, gonna finish it because there's only six episodes so we've got we've got two more left and then but yep. we'll give her kind of like i think we could probably do like a full review on the show maybe um in the next couple of weeks here yeah. kind of just give our full thoughts or something like that sure because it is the one show that we've watched together um and mentioned the most on this show so mm-hmm. I also started getting back into this other show, um, which I kind of put down for a couple of years. And it, the show has ended now. It's called Turn Washington Spies. I was watching it for a couple of years, the first two seasons on TV. And then I decided to kind of put it down and give it the wayside um, and throw it to the wayside, I guess. Uh, just because I had other stuff that I was going on at the time. But now that it's kind of finished, I think I'm going to try and see it through. Mm. Um, it's a bit of a historical drama, a little bit of action-adventure. Um, and it stars Jamie Bell, who you may remember him from movies like uh, Jumper. <laughs> um, uh. He's actually like a really—you uh, know—I wouldn't
1: remember him from films such as Jumper, but he—that's that's the only that's thing, the only movie I can remember. That's him the only—that's the only film that I can really come off the I thought bat. Hayden Christensen was in there, yeah, but
0: so was Jamie Bell.
2: Samuel Jamie Bell Jackson was in there too. Yeah, whoa! That
0: was yeah. Actually, I gotta watch that movie.
1: I would say that's not actually that bad of a film. Does, does Hayden Christensen cut off Samuel L. Jackson's hand in that film, film as well? No, but something close to happens <laughs> to it.
0: But yeah, it's a good show. Give it a watch. But it's definitely interesting to kind of look at it now and see where the Americas come from and things like that. And kind of really understand and then relate it back to her, you know the history now and kind of see like why people are upset. And like you, you can really kind of understand the, the divide in the country. Um when you watch that show and then you compare it to now. Now like today's history, so. But with that comes the best part of the show. What is that, Corey?
1: It's the time that we talk about the film. The film of the week. The film of the week. The film that we have chosen for this week and are going to talk about. And have already mentioned many times already. That's right. Is You guessed it, the Hateful Eight. The Magnificent Seven. Oh. <laughs> Whoops. The Magnificent Seven. No, it's definitely the
0: Hateful Eight. God
1: The Dirty Dozen. It can get real confusing. Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ocean's Eight? But anyway, the film we're talking about is The Hateful Eight. None of those silly ones we said afterwards. Corey. Yes, that's me. Are you excited? I'm so excited. I like this film. Yeah? Um, But maybe don't say that yet. Well, it's fine. (laughs) Um, Usually that comes at the end. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I think we're going to go into... Yeah. The um, explanation of the... I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, Corey's Cory's trying. To, I'm just watching Corey try and he's watching me struggle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's quite funny. I was like, oh no no no, go ahead. So actually, hold on, Brendan, put out your hand. Yeah, what's up? Put out your hand. You're tagged in. Okay, cool. Take it from me. So,
0: so this is the part of the show where we go and ask Jesse um, specifically why he kind of picked this film, and uh, you know, yeah, just give us give us a reason and what what's going on there and. Yeah, the who,
2: what, when, where, in the houses. Um, so my elder brother introduced me to Quentin Tarantino films, uh, except for the time that one. You I might was, want to specify the older brother situation. Uh, my older brother Brennan. Yeah, that's me. Um, introduced me to Quentin Tarantino films at a younger age. Uh, besides the one time that I watched Kill Bill three or two, <laughs> all the way through. I want to watch that. When I was did I say when I was eight? When I was eight years old, I what? watched it, and that was prior to my brother showing me that. Um, but then we went out and we saw Django Unchained. On Christmas. Was on Christmas, or whenever it came out, and I thought it was great. And then I watched all his other stuff, and I watched uh, Inglorious Bastards and Reservoir Dogs, and mm-hmm. I just love all his films. But The Hateful Eight came out, and I really like this one because it reminds me of a play, like it's supposed to, but it's it my favorite my favorite part of the fact of this movie is that it all takes place in one place, pretty much. Yeah, It's all in one setting. There's a lot of detail with that. There's a lot of panning. There's a lot of really cool, great shots and a lot of attention to detail on the set and the characters. And uh, it's probably my favorite film that he's made now. Oh, that's good.
0: Oh. I'm actually glad that you mentioned the how I introduced you to this because if you hadn't said I was just going to mention it. But yeah, no, this whole... This Christmas episode that we're doing. This is the Christmas episode that we're doing. I. This is actually the reason why I wanted to have you on is because it kind of a little bit, little bit sentimental. One could say because it's the Christmas episode and we're talking about a film that you and I watched when we were kids at Christmas time. Uh, in a sense, because we watched Django Unchained on Christmas Day, right? And then we watched this film as well. So the following two years later, would you say? And I watched it with Corey actually for the first That's time. That's right. Yeah. So. Jesse, thanks for that. That's super dope. Super sentimental. Great and fine and dandy. But can you tell us what this, this movie's about?
2: All right. The Hateful Eight uh, takes place about 10 years after the Civil War on the back of the box. It says 6, 8, or 12. So I said 10. Okay. Uh, stagecoach <laughs> passing through the backcountry of Wyoming. It stopped by a bounty hunter. It joins a stagecoach with another bounty hunter and a bounty. So they hightail it to stop at Minnie's haberdashery where they can wait out a blizzard. Before they get there, they pick up a soon-to-be sheriff, and then right, uh, then they when they get there, they're greeted by four new faces who claim that they're looking after the haberdashery. But uh, one of the bounties is a little bit, uh, a little, uh, mm, I don't know about that. And then they get in there, and then uh, they all start to realize that not everybody is who they seem say they are. Classic who done it.
0: Jesse did the first legitimate synopsis. He actually wrote that himself and put it on his phone, and then wow. Well, He's been holding it on his phone, eagerly awaiting for us to uh, mm-hmm. uh, talk about Film of the Week. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Let's get into it. How about that? You ready, Corey? Yes. I kind of wanted to start off this discussion a little bit, talking about the format of the film and regards to its old and new style vibes it's got going on. Quentin loves film, and we can tell based on all the films that he's made Uh, A lot of his films are very much representations of old film and old classic film mixed in with kind of a newer genre and then his own kind of like style mixed in there as well. So I would say Hateful Eight is a perfect representation of this kind of old and new style vibe that he was really able to bring out. That actually works quite well to a point where, you know, it's a Quentin Tarantino film, but you also can kind of feel like it's a new age Western film. But again, like still holding on to those old school type of vibes that they, they filmed um, older Westerns. So, I mean, we could start off with the first sequence of the film, which is the opening credits. A lot of like uh, older films, I remember Cleopatra. I know that's not a mm-hmm. Western, but, you know, Cleopatra and Ben-Hur and, you know, Planet of the Apes or The Good, Bad, The Ugly. All these films, this this part of that Hollywood time frame, all have this long opening credit sequence. And Quentin's kind of known for these long opening credit sequences but this sequence is just i don't know it caught my eye because it's just it's a really long shot of it was jesus on a cross it was right the crucifixion there yeah. was a
2: zoomed in shot of the crucifixion and it, and then it, it pans away and it, zooms out at the same time too. yeah and
0: that pan right. as it pans out you see a stagecoach in the distance kind of slowly coming by as well as the music starts in that close-up version of the crucifixion shot the of jesus it's the music's kind of like very slow, and and then it builds and then builds and it builds and then it builds and then the stagecoach kind of comes in the full full view, um and goes by the crucifixion scene. I don't know what you guys thought about that and how you maybe felt that. I don't know if you've ever seen the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly or these older kind of style
2: of credits uh, scenes or these credit opening
0: credit sequences.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It reminds me of watching the Magnificent Seven or any other kind of old spaghetti western kind of feel. Mm-hmm. It also gives you like a good like, I don't know if it's like if it was a, a thing to get people to settle down or something in theaters, mm-hmm. but it really lets you like tune to the movie so you're like ready to intake it all. Like it almost as if it's like a, a, a tuning fork, just getting you to f- listen to that fork and get you ready for it. And I, I liked it. Yeah, I I would.
0: It's it's interesting to note that. We look at today's opening credits, um, and they're very, like, almost not even really, you know, really interesting to kind of pay attention to. We just want to get them over with. Yeah, it's almost like you want to get them over with, but it's almost like with Quentin Tarantino's films, they're, they're an event, almost. You're just as excited about his, you know, opening sequence as you are about, you know, the entirety of the film, because you're wondering kind of how it's all going to play out and things like that, so... I don't know if you guys noticed this also, but the audio too, the audio capture is almost very, it's got like an old feel to it as well because it like audio capture was a lot more husker. There was like a husky sound to it. Like it's very like dusty almost. Mm. I don't know to simplify it in words there. um, But it felt that way kind of at times in this film. And I don't know if it was on purpose or not. It almost felt like they were doing extra audio capture in post-production for these characters. To really kind of heighten the volume in regards to their voices, or have a more softer feel in regards to the background sounds, because there's so much going on. Like there's horses always in the background, or there, yeah. you know,
1: there's constant wind as well.
0: In the oh background. gosh, yeah.
2: They so. want you to hear. There, there's so much detail with the sound, and that's that's also something I point out. There's so much detail in this set. Like you can see their breath. It's in a the refrigerator. There's snow. There's lighting. And there it. There's so with the sound I, could, I would expect them to overdub and make it like the voices their characters speak loudly just like in kind a of play yeah you you overemphasize your voice so that the audience can hear you it's almost like that yeah mm-hmm. I mean,
1: like you say even even if like you're whispering on stage you still have to be loud enough for people to hear it and all, like, yeah like, just in case
2: like a, like, a whisp- mic fails a whisper <laughs> is like a whisper
1: yeah. yeah i am whispering right now
0: yeah I would say it adds to the quality of the film as well in regards to how how much time was put into giving it that, you know, old school vibe. I also, again, sticking with this, you know, this theme, of, you know, the new and the old, I also want to reference the dialogue. And I know that the dialogue is very representative of Quentin Tarantino and the conversations themselves, It's almost like he did Django Unchained and was like, that was the baby and this is the adult version of it, like of his Western. Mm. Because I I feel like Django Unchained had a very new and old style as well. Mm. But when you compare it to this film, I mean, obviously different stories and things like that. But when you compare it to this film, it's very much, you know, it it feels like a very fine, you know, finely tuned product. I'm not saying that Django wasn't. I'm just saying that I think that he really hit what he was going for with this film it's almost like it was a take two or something like that. But his dialogue um, is also very representative of this new and old school vibe as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and and though it is, you know, Quentin Tarantino-esque, it also just the way they talk is very abrupt and very to the point. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I mean, obviously that has a lot to do with how you write the characters of that period. Some of them actually, some, some people obviously of that time were often illiterate um, and couldn't even, you know... I mean I guess that makes sense so a lot of their words were kind of just based on not how they read but how they had conversations
1: with other people. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, mean, I think that also comes into play um just based on what kind of characters they are Whereas, mm-hmm. like they're like there's a lawman, there's bounty hunters, there's gang members like they're very uh, you know no bullshit kind yeah. of characters yeah. uh they got to the point. So that could have some influence on the way they spoke and stuff like that as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So for the sheriff he's very He's very kind of... a His, his character was a cliché. Um, yeah.
0: Well, I mean, in a lot of... I, kinds, I like that, though. He, yeah. He's my favorite character. Well, I would say that almost all these characters in this film are Quentin Tarantino, re, like, a reimagining cliché. Like, I, I think that he takes the tropes, because that's his thing, is what he does is he takes tropes of his favorite genres, and then he reimagines them within his own films, and then kind of, like, take, dials it up to a 10. Yeah. Like, that. that's... That's the reason why his blood squibs are so intense, uh-huh. uh, because, you know, it's his film. We all know it's a Quentin Tarantino film. When his you see spotlights it are everywhere. Well, in regards to this film. Oh, well, yeah, I mean... No, he could... in, the, in the
2: Haberdasher, there's spotlights everywhere. Yeah,
0: but I think a lot of his films, though, too, when they have big dialogue scenes, like if you look at... Um... He loves the spotlights, yeah. just in general. He like loves in, the spotlights. Like in, in Inglorious Bastards, the scene where they're downstairs in that um, bar. Yeah. A lot of spotlights going on. If there's there, a table. Uh, there's a spotlight. Yeah, often, often. So before we kind of move on for this stuff, I, I really thought it was important to mention that he shot on an old school camera, the Panavision 7, I think it was 70 millimeter. Mm-hmm. So it allows them to kind of have a wider shot. But also Quentin Tarantino is just a huge proponent for film. He, I, I remember watching a documentary once about him because him and Robert Rodriguez are good f- friends. Um, and Robert shoots on digital and Quentin shoots on film. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, the documentary was actually called Side by Side with Keanu Reeves. It was Keanu Reeves' like, production, almost. Oh. It was actually quite interesting. And Rodriguez brought up this conversation between Quentin, apparently, and he... He said that you know he's like oh you know just shoot it on just shoot it on digital it'll be easier and then Quentin says get that shit away from me <laughs> you know what I mean so no. but yeah no this film was shot on seventy millimeter and it definitely shows and it definitely brings out these actors and actresses in this film and again it heightens the you know the old school vibe of trying to capture the western or spaghetti western vibe um, they had back in the day and it, and it heightens the colors um, and it also heightens the um, it heightens the makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a real crisp look at makeup, um, and it looks really cheesy. Like um, Daisy Domagrew's character, I don't know the actress's name. Do you know ja- her? Jennifer, Jennifer Jason Leigh? Yeah. yeah, Jennifer Jason Leigh. She has a black eye when we first meet her, and the black eye
2: looks—it's very hard. It's, it's very, a very hard makeup. Yeah,
0: it's very like harsh looking. And at one point, I remember mentioning the boys. I was like, it would be interesting to watch this in black and white, or just yeah. kind of like a really hard grain, like a, like get the grain of the film a little bit. <laughs> You know, rough or something like that, like a Charlie Chaplin film, to see kind of how would it all look to that to that extent.
2: I think with the seventy millimeter uh, filming technique too, uh, it really encapsulate the feeling that you're viewing a play. There
0: are actual issues though in shooting in this, you know, seventy millimeter. Though I don't know if you guys notice it, but it's this. It's a, it's not that it's lazy, but it's more of a matter of the fact that you only have a because they were given. 11 minute reels for this specific you know this this camera um that they were using to shoot with film they were giving like 11 minutes Mm. uh whereas usually with this specific camera you're only actually been able to shoot with four minutes worth of you know footage um so they like basically fixed it so you can you know whatever and i would say that to some extent that becomes a negative in regards to when you're capturing a shot so I don't know if you noticed near the end of the film with Walt, Walt Gaw, Walter Goggins or Walton Goggins. His character is talking to Daisy Domergue on the floor. His lower half, which would technically be something that you would want to see in a shot because you're trying to emphasize that he's limping. And what is he because he's bracing himself on the chairs because he's been shot in the leg. Mm. And you kind of want to see that, I would almost argue, to kind of, you know, give an emphasis on. Why he's standing the way he is, you know. I would say that because they captured it on this camera, they weren't really possibly able to go back and fix some of certain shots. So I, I would, I would say it almost sometimes limits your ability to be able yeah, to do that.
1: I, I mean, in that certain circumstance, they do establish that he has been shot in the leg, and they do like do a low shot of his legs walking around with the chair.
0: Yeah, I know that, but it's just more of the camera angle just felt a little bit awkward, I guess. But that might just be personal
2: preference to yep. some extent. You mean when it was looking up at him?
0: Well, no, it's just there's a shot where they have Samuel L. Jackson's on the bed in the background and then Walton Goggins is in the, you know, in the foreground here. And then, but it's like at a really weird angle where they have like half of his forearm in the shot and it's just very much hmm. emphasized kind of to the, I don't know. It's just, I think
2: it was more about the mood of that shot rather than it being cut off. I think it was about like the tensity of the situation of what was going on. You got Daisy on the floor, you know. Pleading to get what she wants, and then you got the two on the bed drawing the guns, and it feels very tense. So I feel like that's probably why it may have been like that. It could Mm -hmm. have not been, but that's what it felt like. It added to it.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's just it's difficult sometimes because you know, film like you you get what you capture in a day. You don't get to look back at it right away because you have to go and get it developed and you know look at your dailies and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult sometimes. And you deal a lot with continuity errors because you can't always go back and recreate you know your lighting and all that other jazz so when you get your film back the next day you're just kind of like well you either have to go with it or you got to scrap you know you have to remake it and sometimes if you're cutting in between old and newer shots you kind of just have to go with what you got Mm -hmm. but also too that heightens the actors uh want to kind of give the best they can as well Mm -hmm. because you only actually have a certain amount of time to shoot Um, and if say, you know, you don't give them everything you can in that one day, um, that you like as an actor or actress, you know, you really can't go back because, you know, you have to basically reshoot the whole scene again because the lighting and lighting is just a huge issue for film, I would say. So with this old style camera, you're able to capture like a wide frame and that kind of gives the film a very much a theater feeling to it, as Jesse's kind of mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Um... And and you capture a whole room, um, and I would say almost seventy five to eighty percent of this film is actually just shot in a singular room, um, or, a, or I guess a house, Minnie's haberdashery, mm-hmm. and with that, yeah, you get a really theatrical, in the theater type of vibe to it, where everything is kind of going on. It's very Shakespearean a little bit, um, how it gets every how everybody's involved in some capacity, even if they're in the background or in the foreground and they're not the main player in this. You know, shot
1: or whatever. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's kind of theater in the roundish, yeah, if you will. Um, because obviously, it's a it's a small little place that they're in, and there's stuff all over that is useful to each one of the characters. So they're yeah. all kind of moving around and interacting, which obviously has to happen because it's a film. You can't just have, yeah, you know, can't just shoot against one wall and have all the characters, yeah, interact like that. But.
0: It's interesting we were watching it last night and I was talking about how Kurt Russell's scene when he first comes into Minnie's haberdashery, he almost he goes around the room and almost interacts with everybody. Mm because because <laughs> he doesn't trust anyone mm-hmm. and he interacts with everybody in the in the space like you would interact with everybody in a space in a play so if, if someone's cleaning in the stage or something like that doing something in the background you come up and then you ask him a question but also too we we actually paused for half a second and reminded me a little bit of those RPG games like Skyrim and Fallout when you enter a village and then you go around asking everybody about themselves and they give you a whole history and stuff like that but
2: mm-hmm. No, no, yeah, no, that's exactly what I felt like. As well with the spotlights, it adds to that feeling that you're watching somebody play a video game, introduce a character here, they tell their story, um, and they go to the next guy, so on and so forth. I think Kurt Russell definitely, though, in just in that feeling, tried to establish himself as dominant figure. And then he does, he wraps it up with his whole, all right, everybody, this is Daisy Dimergoo, she's wanted for yada 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 yeah yeah
0: it's quite interesting i actually heard that when they were early production stages of this film um or i watched a uh in-depth hollywood exclusive video of um him and a bunch of other directors at the time because the revenant came around out around this time as well quentin tarantino in this um you know this piece basically he was talking about how you know after he's done his 10th film because he said he's only gonna make 10 but you know that he wants to kind of, you know, do writing or do play work and things like that. And he mentioned that this film would make a really terrific play. And and it really does. And I think it would really translate really well. And it's, it's interesting because you almost watch his films and you don't really get that theater vibe um, for some of his films, but then sometimes you do. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you don't really know if he likes movies or theater more. But this film, it's definitely, like, you can really tell that he absolutely loves theater. Oh, for sure. I oh, hope um, if they
2: do a theater version of this, there's real squibs, because that would look great. Oh, man. On awesome. stage, just, yeah. like...
0: Or you have strings, people pulling you off after you get shot, I don't know? Like, do you remember, like, when people, like, it pulled, um, like, when...
1: Uh, what's his name? Uh, oh, yeah, the zombie thing? For, like, uh, I, can't, I can't remember who, but there was, there was an old zombie film where instead of, like, doing squibs, they would just put nickels in like a zombie's head and they would pull it out and there'd be a gunshot
0: yeah yeah, yeah for sure i mean mm-hmm. that wasn't what i was talking about oh, okay. but that was a good idea it was more or less like when somebody gets i, I know what you're talking about yeah. though with the uh, george A. romero's yes. like older films where yes, he yeah. like like dawn of the dead or something like mm-hmm. that they had basically squibs were made through like attaching a string to a quarter yeah. and then attaching that quarter to the person's head and then putting like a blood splot and yeah then they'd exactly pull it yeah that's That's interesting. I never thought... But I was more or less talking about how, like, when people get shot in this film, they always, like, fly backwards, unrealistically. Oh, Um, Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Like in Django. Yeah, like in Django, Mm -hmm. when Django shoots that... Miss Hilda. Say about Miss
2: Hilda. Bye, Miss Hilda. But he shoots her... Shoots her at an angle that would have shot her towards a corner uh, in, into the archway yeah and then but, but she gets she, pulled she out gets, of her room she gets <laughs> pulled out by wires very immediately. <laughs> and it's it's meant to be funny yeah it's hilarious sure.
0: yeah and that's sometimes is like when you watch a quentin tarantino film you feel like okay well is this you're supposed to take every character seriously despite the fact of how dominant the character feels and how how realistic and interesting the character is you're never really i feel like supposed to relate to any characters in quentin tarantino's films at all I almost feel like because they're all a bunch of idiots to some extent. I don't think any character in Quentin Terno's films are very much any characters. You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, totally relate to that guy <laughs> or, yeah. you know,
2: I mean, like more. I don't think they're idiots. I think it's just you can't really relate. They're just to so them. exaggerated. They're though.
0: so exaggerated. But also you can relate to them more in a sense of like, oh, yeah, I agree with his point there and things like that. Like I remember I was having a conversation about, you know, tips, tipping people. Um mm. And uh, I remember Steve Bucemi's rant in the beginning of Reservoir dogs talking about how the reasons why why he doesn't tip people when he goes to a restaurant and how and all the other guys at the table kind of you know bicker about how that's a stupid thing and I remember when I was in high school that was a reason his his rant was his was my reason that I didn't tip for like two years that, during high school and Then I realized like that that's not a good thing to do but mm-hmm. but Cory um you and I had been talking about before the podcast uh this idea of the Chekhovs gun theory as well mm-hmm. Chekhov's gun. I don't know. Why don't you, uh, why don't you mention it to the people? And it's a big, it's a big deal within theater, film. Yes, I guess so much in the sense that they relate to one another because you know one spawned from another. But mm. I don't know, Corey. Why don't you tell us about Chekhov's gun?
1: So Chekhov's gun is a uh, a dramatic principle that states that every element in a story must be necessary. So the kind of like setting up of certain things that will pay off later in the film. Mm -hmm. And irrelevant elements should be removed. Uh, Elements should not appear appear to make false promises by never coming into play. Mm -hmm. Yeah, basically just saying that anything that's kind of laid out or introduced at the beginning or middle of a film or play should be used constructively later.
0: So like basically if you introduce a gun in the first act of the play and you Mm -hmm. put it down... It has to be used at some point, most likely in the second uh, act of the play. So that way you can have a climactic third act. Mm -hmm. In regards to this film, Jesse, could you name the Chekhov's gun for us?
2: Oh, the coffee.
0: Yeah, so there's a reoccurring conversation throughout the entirety of the film. Someone
2: poisoned the waterhole. Yeah,
0: that's the other thing is it's someone poisoned the waterhole. It's Mm. kind of interesting how he plays on that. You know, old style Western, you know, saying is somebody poisoned somebody poisoned the water hole. I know that's from like Toy Story, but that's a big, that's a big Western. There's a snake in my boot. Yeah, yeah. There's like a, there's like a, that's like an old school, like Western, you know, trope saying or whatever. Hmm. And it's funny because in this film it's coffee. uh And the, and then he plays that in with how the coffee, you know, acts as this checkoff's gun because the coffee in the film is mentioned so many bloody times. Yes. like, it's Minnie's world's famous, you know, coffee, and um, when they walk into Minnie's haberdashery, uh, John Ruth, the hangman, drinks some of the coffee that Bob made, mm-hmm. uh, and he hates it. and He spits it out. It's almost like this coffee acts as like the center stage throughout the entirety of the film. Its color is a, the color of the 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 canteen that it sits in. The it's picture, quite prominent. It's it's a big deal because it's a bright bright blue. Mm-hmm. There's no other colors in that space, as far as I can remember, that are that. Prominent, especially all the characters' outfits and things like that. But Chekhov's gun theory is never actually—you don't actually have to ever use it. It's—it's just more or less like an idea that a lot of film and theater kind of play by. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's interesting how, in a sense, too, the Chekhov's gun—we don't actually—it's not standing as a gun; it's standing as a regular household Mm -hmm. item uh, or a regular, you know, thing that everybody you know does and drinks. And then we don't know it's Chekhov's gun until it poisons people and people start spitting yeah. up about it so
1: and there is kind of a Chekhov's gun that is a gun but we don't know about it yeah until like the later half of the film, yeah which is which weird, is weird.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah it's it's funny when you think about it that way so I don't know I th- just thought it was quite important to mention that because I, I think watching this time I remember like in my early like film studies days we we spent a lot of time especially in literature too at times we spent a lot of time just focusing on this Chekhov's gun theory and I actually I think I wrote a paper at one time about Chekhov's gun um, cause it's just so fascinating. It's not really, it's not about the gun. It's just really anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's like, I, like you said, and I said, it, it's interesting how like he really, you know, Quentin really plays, plays with this Chekhov's gun theory in this film. So and I
1: actually have a question yeah. kind of based on that. Um, cause I know you had mentioned when uh, he's pointing at Jesse. Yes. Sorry. When Jesse had mentioned, um, there's an intermission in the film and they kind of, for the theatrical showings, I believe they actually had a 15 minute intermission and. So when, yeah. when you come back in, there's a narrator explaining what's going on. Mm-hmm. How did you feel about the narrator explaining that the coffee had been poisoned?
2: So, for me personally, mm-hmm. it's very Tarantino. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But there's also the sense that had that narrator not mentioned that, and the way that it's also because of the way they set it up, like they 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 only showed that someone poisoned it because. The narrator was telling you that someone poisoned it. Yep. Had they not had the narrator, you would be oblivious that people were just dying, and you wouldn't understand. You'd be like, "Wait, why all of a sudden is are these people dying?" Just would through? you guys say that would enhance the film if they didn't add that sequence where he kind of like? I think I think it would just. I I, I, I think it adds that extra Tarantino detail though, where it's just like it's it's cute, it's quirky, it's um, Dumbergu's got a secret, right? yeah. And it's, sure. it's it's pointing out that. She's getting a little bit of revenge with her situation. Mm-hmm. She's kind of winning, yeah. And I, I, I don't know exactly the purpose for it, but if had the narrator not called that out, mm-hmm. you just you'd be oblivious to it, and it'd kind of be a plot hole. Be like, wait, all of a sudden, why are these dying? And when... then tell someone goes, some poisoned the coffee. You just, you just wouldn't get it.
0: Well, no, what I was, I, I wouldn't say it's a plot hole. I would say that it's more of a because they mention it so many times, and I, I think that because people aren't wholly aware because Chekhov's gun is always sitting in the background of film mm-hmm. uh it's always it's always the background um no one actually mentions Chekhov's gun it's just a thing you could literally put a piece of tape on the table um I literally put a piece of tape on the table but you could put a piece of tape on the table and and no one would call attention to it mm-hmm. and that's just based solely on the fact that that's how we as viewers kind of view film nowadays however in theater it's a little bit different mm-hmm. But the fact that people are watching a film that has theater elements, I, I think you'd need that narrator to tell you um, because everything within theater, everything is very limited. Everything is a little bit more imaginative, mm-hmm. whereas like within film you have to show everything. And so yeah. there's a lot going on. So if I don't think if they had this, I wouldn't say it's less of a... I wouldn't say it's a plot hole. Well, actually, I, no, it isn't a plot hole. Yeah, I wouldn't, I yeah, I wouldn't really it. call it a plot hole. I would just say that I don't think that the audience is always gonna be aware of Chekhov's gun because you're in a movie because within film it's less acknowledged because everything is always in the forefront we always know what's going on because you're made with the camera to look at certain things
2: it also adds a certain sense of suspense because like now you know the audience knows it's a wink to the camera the audience yeah. hey this has been poison and then you watch two hero characters mm. or you see two people drinking, and you're like oh shit Shit's about to get real. Movie's about to climax. And yeah, are going to go down.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. But,
2: well, I don't know. How about you, Corey? What do you see it as? Like, do you think it I would mean, enhance
0: it, or I what? didn't?
1: I didn't really have any particular strong views towards it. I was just kind of throwing out the question. But at the same time, I also feel like this movie is some sort of a. Like it's a western, but it's also like a murder mystery kind of. Yeah, a classic who done it? Exactly, exactly a classic who done it. So. I
0: thought of like uh, I thought of Murder on the Orient Express actually when mm-hmm. I was when I mean I know that's that's an older film again too, yep. and I wonder if that had some inspiration because this is like it is the name itself is based off of you know it's it's an homage to the Magnificent Seven or the the Seven Samurai, so it's kind of like playing with the cow, cowboy vibes, but it's also you know. It's very uh, similar to old style early cinema where you're using a singular set, kind of like how they used to do it, because of the the evolution of film being a separate element from theater. So I don't know. Yeah, I I just it was very Casablanca ish, mm-hmm. almost because you're using um, you're using Sal's place quite a lot. So yeah.
1: I think if they if he maybe found a little bit more creative way to yeah. kind of reveal it rather than just like the. The Tell coffee you. is poisoned. Yeah. Whereas, like, maybe as Samuel L. Jackson is having his speech about the, his son, you know, doing <laughs> terrible things to him, they could have had a shot where it's like it fo- focuses on Daisy Domergoo and then pans over to the coffee to maybe see a hand or something. But then also that could take away from Samuel L. Jackson's speech. So I don't know. Yeah. Just kinda... I think it would really take away. And I yeah. wonder if
0: I wonder if he was thinking that too when he was writing that. Because mm-hmm. he is very. I mean, he has continuity issues, but that's just more of the fact that you know he's he's limited with the film that he's using, right? He's, sure. But but the guy is very good at creating a scene and being able to make you look at something. Yeah, um, he really wanted
2: you. He really wanted and, to highlight Samuel Jackson in that moment, and well. he also likes. He really appreciates that actor. And And it
1: is probably one of the better scenes in the film. Mm
2: -hmm. It's one of the funniest. I
1: almost,
0: uh, you know, we're talking about these highlights and these things like that. And I think it might be a good time to kind of segue into wardrobe and outfits in this film. And I think that's quite important. I felt that each character has a very individualized uh, look to them to a point where they give you misconceptions of who they actually are. Because again, this film is a classic whodunit. Mm-hmm. So you think you you get this vibe that because you know back in the day, back in the old west, you really didn't know who to trust other than your family, mm-hmm. and uh, you know you're you were trying to protect everything. Yeah. and this whole film is pretty much uh, the classic you know i'm trying to protect what is mine and what i'm owed yes um and that's very representative of the time period but also too it's um it really feeds into the story of the film and it also is represented within uh the characters outfits and things like that to then have you really try and see the differing perspectives of each individuals because it was during the civil war so you play a lot with these um You're playing in a period where a lot of trust is an issue as a country is in in itself, Mm -hmm. because the country in itself is very divided at this point. So Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of differing views between the um, Union uh, soldiers and the Confederate soldiers. So
1: and is Wyoming kind of in? uh, I'm not very familiar. Wyoming is right in the middle.
0: Yeah it's about yeah it's like
1: so it's perfect kind of placement for that that divide of political ideals and stuff like that. yeah exactly exactly and
0: and there is representations of well samuel jackson's character was is a union soldier Mm -hmm. um but he's also black too and then so that plays into it as well these differing ideals and being able to trust people and stuff like that so but their wardrobes they and, and the way they look and the way they talk um, and their makeups really kind of like immediately were being told not to trust anybody based on John Ruth the Hangman's words mm-hmm. um, and how he's kind of guiding the whole film. Because the whole film just starts out with him just accusing somebody of trying to steal his stuff. To us, I mean Samuel L. Jackson to me, he, he's always a pretty cool dude. I sure. I wouldn't trust that he's going to hurt anybody. But we don't know. <laughs> but we don't know, right? So... Yeah um and and i mean being uh, being who i am i was on the side i would be more inclined uh to to have the similar ideals as this union soldiers as opposed to a confederate soldier obviously mm-hmm. so um i'm going to obviously put more emphasis into trusting that character as opposed to Walt, walton goggins character sure but again they're they're completely different people and then they end up coming together at the end, which is really interesting.
1: So, Which is actually something I wanted to say. Uh, I don't know if it was on purpose. It probably was. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, but how, at the beginning of the film, you have Walton Goggins and Samuel L. Jackson really not liking each other. Exactly. And eventually they do come together. And once they, after there's a whole shootout, mm-hmm. once they shed their kind of initial uniform, mm-hmm. they're both on the bed. They're wearing very similar kind of outfits. Yeah. the black vest and the white shirt and stuff like that. So I thought that was kind of a cool touch as well. Yeah
0: yeah it's really interesting how they kind of like come together right at the end there because they have complete differing differing ideals um to a point where they're very um like he's calling him the n word like the whole mm. film. Mm-hmm. Th- their outfits seem to almost create a misconception of of who you should trust. John Ruth the hangman is the very his, his outfit is very much uh um, you know outlawed. It, it's Untrusted. not outlawed, it's it's just more like we're introduced to him first so we have more warrant. And merit to trust his opinion as opposed to anybody else's. Mm -hmm. And so then we're basically going upon outfits and how people look in regards to how he sees other people. So you got Confederate soldier and a black Union soldier. And then Mm. you walk into Minnie's haberdashery and you get a British gentleman who, with a very fine British voice, you just assume (laughs) is a very nice guy uh, based on how he talks. But then he comes out to be this asshole, um, and then you get this Mexican guy, Senor Bob.
1: Senor Bob.
0: And then you have the rancher character, who I actually thought, who's played by Michael Madsen, who I actually thought, because I, I knew that this film was going to be very theater- theater-esque when we got into this, but you also know that because of that, something's going to happen at some point or another where things are going to kick off, and when you immediately meet all these characters, you're immediately trying to figure out, okay, who's who and who's doing what, Right. Um, and i just kind of wanted to ask like when you guys watched this film for the first time who did you think you know were the the who done it guys in this film was you know i don't know because i definitely didn't think it was joe gage i think
1: that everyone was trying to make us think it was joe gage but yeah i thought it was i feel like i thought it was tim roth yeah because he was kind of overdoing it to a point where he's yeah. like hey i'm not I think i'm a nice guy and also just from previous films i've seen him he's Kind of a creepy guy.
0: We always play as the double agent. Yes, he was. Uh,
1: he was he the was, Reservoir Dogs. He was. He was double agent.
0: Yeah, he was a double agent. He was playing
1: um, Agent
0: Orange. Or no, he was. He was playing. He played Mister Orange. Mister in in the Orange. Film. Yeah. yeah. Jesse, how did you? How who did you see were the culprits in this film originally?
2: Uh, I definitely think it was Tim, just because his, uh, his demeanor and uh, the way that he was moving about the room and introducing himself and the way that he questioned and. The hangman, like, may I see a warrant? It just was... It's off-putting. You're like, okay, this guy's got some stuff up his butt that he's not... He's hiding some things right now. Yeah. He's like, you're definitely... So it's more of like uh, a... And then then also I thought it was him and the the Mexican. Uh, What was his name? Senior Bob. Senior Bob. Senior Bob. Bob. Amigo. Uh, Senior Bob definitely had some things going on because... Samuel Jackson, the wisest of the whole group, kind of pointed it out right away when they were in the stable, and they're like, yeah. "Huh, it's weird that Minnie's not here. That never happens." And same with uh, Sweet Dave; he's not here either. That's weird because he never leaves his seat. Yeah. I I really
0: like the film's ability to um, manipulate you, make you keep on guessing who should we trust because everyone is very different looking um, in the haberdashery. But I would I would say that you know Jesse's point and your point, Corey, of you know obviously pointing at. You know, Pete as the culprit. Or not Pete. His name's Pete in the film. It's like Peter...
1: Oh, Oswaldo.
0: Yeah, but his name's actually like... like
1: Oh, Pete the Englishman?
0: Yeah, Pete the Englishman or something like that. Yeah.
1: Oswaldo Malbray.
0: Yeah, but I, I felt that he was too good to be true character. Mm-hmm. So it was obviously going to be him. But I also felt like that Senior Bob, because of how simplistic his name was, mm. I almost didn't feel like he was even Mexican. Like, I almost felt like... Yeah of his his overacting oh yeah
2: his accent was so like heavy
0: yeah and it felt very like cliched and almost a little bit racist a, a little bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh
2: well what's the tarantino film without racism yeah it was
1: yeah like, it was I, so he, over the top he, he was talking
0: <laughs> he was talking very much like a like a cliched version of a cholo yeah yeah, yeah and you're just kind of like all right like where are you going with this so that's a good segue actually um to go into criticisms for the film with racism and stuff like that you know quentin has also been criticized quite a bit for using the n-word within his scripts i've watched documentaries or i've watched sorry interviews with uh, samuel jackson having conversations with interviewers and them talking to him about his thoughts on um quentin's use of the n-word within his films and samuel's pretty much said you know if you're not willing to say it to me you know, or say it out loud, then we shouldn't have the conversation then. Mm. Almost like taking a cold, hard stance. It's like, okay, if you really want to approach this topic, then you need to be able to actually, like, approach it properly. And I know that's probably difficult for a lot of people just because, you know, being white males and things like that, um, having the conversation about the N-word holds a lot of weight Mm. and whether or not we should actually be the people to be talking about it anyways. So, I don't know. His approach, I think, is warranted. Because there is a lot of like a lot of intensity behind that word. Spike Lee has actually come out and said that he'll never watch a Quentin Tarantino film because they say the N word in it. Like he came out as a big deal. He was just like, I'm not going to go see Quentin Tarantino's film because uh, Django Unchained because it's just disrespectful to my ancestors. Yeah,
1: and if, to me that's just a bit of an ignorant kind of response to that because, I mean, it's a if,
2: timely film. If
1: if you have watched Quentin Tarantino movies in the past and you know he worked with Samuel Jackson and stuff like that. Like he's not using it as disrespect. Like yeah. he's, he's using it because they're obviously time period movies mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, white people would say that all the time. They don't yeah. care. They don't like black people. Do they you don't think that them.
0: then that, that then that comes down to the fact of like I, I would agree. I wouldn't say it was necessarily ignorance history. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily ignorant. I wouldn't really use that word, but whatever. Mm-hmm. But I would say it's just more like to each their own. That's your opinion. But I sure. would say having your opinion, you should be a little bit more educated with the fact that like. You should go and see your fil- his film and mm-hmm. see and develop opinion that way as opposed to just immediately ousting him as a, as a racist or offending your ancestry. Mm-hmm. Because I would say, yes, in some of some contexts, he is using the word that it isn't properly being used um, at times. I wouldn't say in either one of these films, as far as I can remember, at least in Hateful Eight, just because that's the closest to memory. Mm-hmm. I would say him using that word within the film. And how he uses it actually is very appropriate. Yes, um, I don't think there was a time where I didn't feel like. But again, I'm a white guy, so I'm you know I couldn't really say this. But I would say if I was in that time and that word was being said like that, it would make sense mm-hmm. culturally um, within a society for them to degrade uh, black
1: people with that word. Yeah, and mm-hmm. usually whenever like white characters are using that word, whenever they do use it, it makes them like. It takes away from their character, it, yeah. Like not quality, yeah. But it just makes them look worse, kind of. Yeah. Like, it doesn't give the the white characters empowerment to use that, yeah. Kind of thing. Right? It makes them look silly exactly. because we,
0: as a twenty first century audience, can recognize that and recognize the history and its implications, yeah. and you know how terrible slavery was, right? Mm, so, yeah. but I would also say that the that Quentin does a really interesting thing here was point out the how black people uh, during this time period just needed to get by. Uh, without almost not really getting noticed, but if you were getting noticed to some degree like Samuel Jackson's character in this film being like a what was his rank in this film? He was a major. Yeah, he was a major and a major being a black a, ma- a black man being a major is kind of a big deal I would was say a huge deal yeah so time. him having the Lincoln letter. Uh, which is also, I wouldn't really say it's a Chekhov's gun in this film, but I would say it's a reoccurring piece within the film that's used, and I would say it's quite interesting. It disarms and it, people. Yeah, it disarms people, and it makes people, like, fee- it, it's like his gun, mm-hmm. almost, if he can't, it, if before he uses his gun to defend himself because he's a black man, mm-hmm. he'll relate to at least half of the people coming at it's- him. That are on the Union side with this Lincoln letter, who had the same political perspective as yeah. Lincoln during this time period. And yeah, not
2: even just the Union side. The Confederates, like, what's his name? Walton Goggins. Walton Goggins was even like, kind of taken back. He's like, "No way! Like that's crazy. That's a big deal. The President of the United States, the President, mm-hmm. President Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, it, it's it's shocking off for for people to go, wow, this black guy has a white man's letter yeah from, and it's the president well so is a big deal
0: to some extent it is believable though because you know president lincoln had these relationships with his soldiers during this time period like he had correspondence with soldiers he had you know, that's something that, you know, every American president, from our, from what I can understand, have these relationships with their men working within uh, the military, you know, from what I understand. It's just really interesting how Quentin is almost using this Lincoln letter to kind of say, you know, you know, I understand that I'm being criticized, but I for using this term or this N word in the film, but I can appropriately show you that I'm using it in a way that makes sense. And that was almost his ways to say that, like, yeah. I understand your points and I get that, but like politically and ideologically in regards to our society, I understand how things are working in the 21st century. I understand Mm -hmm. how this works. So I think the Lincoln letter is a little bit of a fourth wall breaker in the sense that he's letting people know what's going on in his mind, but also to, and, and how he stands in regards to his relationships with, you know, people of different races and things like that and how he uses these terms. And then I also kind of wanted to mention in regards to this, uh, going back to Samuel L. Jackson's character a little bit, is how, you know how like when he he's very skeptical in the beginning of the film, but he's never acting on that skepticism. And he's more or less like coming at it from more of a, huh, oh, that's interesting. Huh. I wonder why this isn't doing this or this and the other thing. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Later on, you learn that he actually has been thinking about the entirety of the space that we've been all spending so much time in throughout the rest, the, the entirety of this film. Mm-hmm. We're, we're looking at it and we're like, we just see it as a space. But to him, we had no idea until he kind of reveals later on that he's been here before yeah. and he knows the rules of Minnie's haberdashery. Yes. And, but he hasn't said anything. And I'm wonder, I, I'd am i like to think like why I, he didn't say anything in, right when he walked in and immediately started accusing people until later on. But I don't know. I want to get kind of first what your guys' thoughts were on that and, like, why if he knew all these things in the beginning um, and why he was so, like, guessing with Senior Bob in the beginning and why he was able to shoot him first out of the three that he had up against the wall. I don't know. What, what are your guys' thoughts?
2: I think he was playing smart. Yeah. Uh, just like he played smart about how he was able to convince uh, the, the general of the Confederate Army to pull the gun on him. Yeah. I, I think he was he was being the smart reserved. Man, he was playing his cards close as they say. He was playing everybody like a poker game.
0: Yeah. Um, well,
2: I don't know if what the reason behind it was. Maybe it was because He's he's the only black gentleman, and maybe he feels that he's yeah could yeah, be exactly. uh, superior in his own way if he did it the, in, in his own way, and he did. He shows that as the movie progresses, you go, yeah, go go Samuel. Like, yeah. you, you feel mm. good about him being able to go. Yeah, he's caught him. He's he's knowing what's happening. He was right. It's like I knew it. Like, or what's it called? Uh, foreshadowing. Yeah. yeah. It, it was ba- there was a lot of that foreshadowing, but it was only with his his character that they were foreshadowing uh foreshadowing um the truth
1: yeah i mean obviously only black character yeah um right from the get-go uh he's not trusted nor does he trust anyone else but would you say that's just that's just based solely on the f- color of his skin though? oh for sure yeah definitely. and no
0: other character in the film is not being trusted based on the color of their skin exactly. and i mean he is the again like he is the black guy though but yeah at the same time it's just like and like that's his that's his outfit almost
1: yeah like yeah, for sure. And like, especially going into, like you said, that's a place he's been before, going into a familiar situation and being so unfamiliar with it, mm-hmm. you're going to hold all your cards close. Yeah. Right, Where because there's a room full of people you don't know in uh, a very strange situation, so you're going to pick your points to kind of reveal information and, and make... Uh, allies with people or whatever the case may be
0: i mean i do agree with jesse i think it, yeah and you it, it plays a lot to do with the fact that him being the only black man he's going to hold those cards closer than other characters just because he's got
2: more people pointing the gun at him just because he's black you know what i mean so i think it's also just to do with cory's explanation there though I, I i do agree with that you brought that up i forgot about that I, It's it's right he is unfamiliar with the familiarity that he has with it and then mm. you know, he points out the sign and then, you know, when he's talking to senior bob and uh oh so you
0: mean when he's deducing things he's just kind not, of
2: coming to the understanding that he hadn't recognized
0: these things before
2: or? Well, no he did recognize them before he he recognized that all these things were off like the stew right he said like it's funny how that stew tastes like mini stew right yeah. he, but he also he also asked about the stew right in front of senior bob in the barn yeah and then he was also questioned about, yeah. why are like, they away?
1: Like, for example, if you're going over to a friend's house for a get-together,
2: yeah, you walk into the room... And your girlfriend's and there's... phone signs into their Wi-Fi, you have questions. But yeah, that
1: makes sense, Jesse. Yeah, it's
0: a good point. It's Metaphor just... for the whole film. Yeah. <laughs> a more 21st century look at the yeah. like, I feel that, yes, like the fact that he's holding his cards closer... Uh, well, one, because he's trying to like figure everything out. But I also think that he held his cards close, maybe for too long though too but again he has no real relationship with anybody in that room anyways mm. so like if anybody dies it's not a big deal but it's just kind of sad though that he didn't kind of you know expose his ideals before um because then possibly john ruth or kurt you know kurt russell wouldn't have gotten killed or something like that because you know But i don't know it's interesting though because maybe people would still be drinking the coffee regardless <laughs> so yeah. i think it maybe had to take the coffee to really you know get that thing happening so yeah So this is Jesse's segment. We're only going to do it once and one time only. Uh, Jesse's pretty excited about it. How would you say that, Jesse?
2: Am I excited? Yeah, are you excited? I think it was just a neat thing that I found out about um, that I was excited to share. What are you going to call your segment? Musical facts.
3: Oh. (laughs) Well, Jesse,
0: you are a musician. Yes, sir. We hear him in his room every single day plopping
1: down on that guitar
0: you
2: know, smacking it, I want to play.
1: smacking it, and giving it those. He strings. actually came into my room one night uh, singing a Tiny Tim song, trying to scare the shit out of me.
2: Because Corey doesn't I mean, like Insidious. I
1: love Insidious. It just well, he doesn't like looks. that one
2: scene. It's really about Domergue and her guitar. In the movie, there are some. There's a good old piano in there. It's nice. Uh, has that honky tonk kind of sound to it. And then there's also the uh, guitar, which is a. A Martin guitar um, um, by C.F. Martin & Co. Now, that guitar was lended from the Martin uh, Archives Museum. The Car- guitar was made around 1870s. And the fun thing about that was that or uh, Jennifer, what's her name, Jennifer? Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Jason Lee, thank you, Corey. Mm-hmm. Uh, she got to practice and learn on that guitar for realism and for when she actually got to play it because it sounds beautiful when it's played in the in the scene when she's singing uh, Bontany Bay, which is also a song that came out in the 19th century as well. But Kurt Russell is listening to... Jennifer Jason Leigh. Jennifer Jason Leigh play this song, and he gets a little upset after she plays a second verse of it, Hmm. where he... uh, she says,
0: uh, "She uses his name. She uses his name, John.
2: Like you'll be dead behind me, John. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is um, after
0: they find out that he's been poisoned. Yeah. Or after she finds out, he's yeah. Been poisoned. This is
2: this is the fun part of it. So, which adds hint hint to the camera and the audience. Um, he picks up the guitar and smashes <laughs> smashes it against one of the pillars. Now, you don't do that to antiques, so you know they they, <laughs> they, they would they they swap you know they would swap it out right." Mm-hmm. So apparently, nobody on set realized that they should have conveyed to Kurt that that was actually the antique he smashed, and they didn't swap it out properly in time or at all. They just didn't do the cut, no one did it. Everybody's just, it was an oversight. And as a result, he destroyed a 145 year old priceless guitar. And now, as a result, the archives. Uh, CF Martin and Co. will never ever lend out a guitar under any circumstances because of that isolated insulate. Now, they thought that some scaffolding fell on it and they're like, oh, we'll probably do some just, you know, antique repairs. But no, it was completely destroyed. <laughs> yeah. And they were just, they were devastated. Well, and
0: her reaction, too. And but... her
2: reaction was character breaking and you could hear it. And she's like, oh my God. And yeah. it was just, it was very, like, really real. And yeah, it, it's just out of place. It's like she came back to.
1: Jennifer
0: Jason Leigh. Yeah,
2: for a moment there, and then
0: um, <laughs> Jesse points to him, to Corey every time he does that. Jennifer
2: Jason Leigh. Um, it, it's it's a fun little thing I I learned I heard about, and then I did some more research on it because I was just like, wow, that's really terrifying well, you, to hear that an antique got destroyed like that.
0: Yeah, Jesse's a big. I'm the film buff of the family, whereas Jesse is the musician.
1: But we're both artists, so it counts. Corey, what are you? Uh, I'm a guy who lives with you. I don't, <laughs> I don't do much well. But sometimes you don't do much well. I That's don't the, do much I'd well. Say you're a, sometimes you're a drawer. I do things. You're a I've been drawer. known to draw.
0: You got a, you've got an artistic hand to you. He's yeah, sure. Yeah.
1: It's only my left one, which is unfortunate because I use my right to, to draw. So yeah. But Jennifer Jason Leigh. Mm.
0: With that comes the end of our discussion of
1: the Hateful Eight. How do you guys think we did? Covered a lot. Great. Yeah. Super awesome.
2: Yeah. Fantastic.
0: So, our next segment is a, everyone's favorite segment. Oh, it's called What Does Your Mom Think? But in this case, it's What Does Your Carmen Think? And your meaning, your Carmen meaning, my Carmen meaning my girlfriend. So, we're going to get her on the phone. Hi. What's your name? Carmen. Yeah. And who are you to me?
3: I am your girlfriend. Well,
0: that's pretty cool. So,
3: Yeah, pretty hey, cool
0: for you. You watched The Hateful Eight with me, and what were your thoughts of the film?
3: I thought it was a bit long. Like, <laughs> It was really long. You start, we started watching it at like 10 p.m., and I've been at work all day. And I remember you kept pausing it every like five minutes to tell me something about it. And consequently, the film was like... Two times the length that already is. (laughs) I thought it was okay. I thought it was okay. I just... It was a bit slow. It just didn't really go anywhere until, like, the last 20 minutes.
0: We should mention that you're actually not a fan of theater, though, too. Well... You're
3: English. I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of uh, amateur dramatics, is what I'm not a fan of. (laughs) I'm a fan of good theater, but not, like, Amdram. Like, I can't... I I can't... It just cringes me. I can't do it. Mm. So... I mean, not saying that the hate flight was Amdram, but
1: yeah. you're
3: making kind of theater film references. That I just thought it was. I thought it was okay, but I just I was like, come on, like let's get some stuff going on
0: here. <laughs> what would you rate out of ten, Babs? Like a six. <laughs>
3: a hateful six.
0: <laughs> a, hateful six.
3: <laughs> a hateful six, not hateful. Oh. Just more like meh like meh.
0: A meh six. A
1: mehful six.
3: Yeah. <laughs> like it's okay. It's okay.
0: Drags and then you watch it
3: again, and you're like, oh, it's not actually as long as I remember.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Babs. That's okay. Is that a good enough synopsis? Yeah, it was good. My
3: opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'd give it a six. I'd give it a, a mess six. <laughs> I it. A mess six. All right. Well, I'm going to have to let you go, and then I'll, I'll talk to you later, okay, Babs? All
3: right. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your
0: recording. All right. I love you. I
3: love you too.
0: Bye. Bye. Well, that was great. Thanks, Carmen, for <laughs> being on the show. But our next segment, to wrap up the show, is our thoughts, our final thoughts on the film, and would you recommend it? Jesse, how would you recommend this film to someone if it wasn't me and Corey?
2: Do you uh, like Tarantino? Uh, who's that? He's a good uh, movie maker. He made, like, Inglorious Bastards and Django, some of his recent stuff, and uh, Reservoir Dogs. Pause. Oh, yeah, I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, you'll like this. It's pretty bloody, but it's uh, it's a little slow, but it's a lot of fun. A lot of a lot of attention to detail. You'd you'd like it? That's, I, that's it's just word that, for word. I, I, that's how would that's recommend. word for word. Actually, how I recommended it today at work,
1: Corey. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Corey, how would you recommend this movie, buddy? Well, I would recommend this film. I think I feel like I've recommended this this way in our show a lot. Yeah, uh, only to certain people. Yeah, because obviously it is a bit of a slower film. Yeah, so right off the bat. You know, there's half your half the people right there. But, I mean, it's it's a great movie. Uh, if you like Quentin Tarantino, I think you're going to like it. I know I've seen it three times now, and each time I like it a little bit more. Yeah. So you're probably going you might not like it as much right off the bat, but, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: I would say the same thing you just said, mm-hmm. but I would try and see if I could recommend it to one of my parents. Yeah. Um, I know that my dad's seen it. I, I said that I would re- recommend Star Wars A New Hope, the one that we watched – last week hmm. to my mom but i'm gonna say the same thing for this film okay. uh, just because i kind of want to see her reaction
2: so brennan yep if you were to give this a score out of 10 what would you give it
0: i don't know i don't like giving movies ratings
2: well i'd give it an eight <laughs> no i'd give it a solid 10 i loved it okay <laughs> solid 10 wow <laughs> this guy's good jokes i just had here. to get the whole eight joke in there somewhere, uh,
0: With that comes the end of the show. But I did want to say, before we close out here, a great big thank you to my little brother, Jesse James McGee, who himself has a cowboy name. What did you say, or an outlaw name?
2: Yeah, I was named after my great-grandfather, Jesse James, who was a farmer, cowboy kind of boy. And he was named after the Robin Hood-esque bandit, uh, Jesse James himself. Uh, Yeah,
0: that's pretty cool. So I wanted to say thank you, though appreciate appreciate you coming on the show you're welcome it's a long time coming for sure we've been talking about you enough on the show yeah thanks partner yeah pilgrim so Corey, no where can they find me aside from sitting across from you oh damn uh they can find you on the old twitter yep at brendan underscore mcgee that is b-r-e-a-n-d-a-n underscore m-c-g-h-e-e thanks mom and dad and Corey, where can they find you you can also find me on the Twitter at McEwen one Because you're number one, boy. Number one. But, Corey, they can also find us at therealrant.com or send mm-hmm. us an email at therealrantpodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Send us something nice, mean, or in between. We do not care. It's all juicy. Just the same. We just want one yeah <laughs>
2: just, just. i'm gonna send you an email now that i know you okay. have email
0: just 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 a nice old email just
1: send us something
0: you can also find us on the real rant on instagram because we have an instagram account now uh-huh very exciting yep mostly just pictures of me and uh cory looking mm-hmm. super fancy sure doing the podcast and me sometimes occasionally looking tired and crazy because i've been up Real late editing. He so. doesn't. He doesn't sleep much. Well, it's not that I don't sleep much. It's that I'm not a huge fan of sleeping,
1: which is insane. To me.
0: Unless I'm actually sleeping, that's usually when I'm a fan. When yes. I'm
1: sleeping, I'm a fan.
0: Uh, but when you're than than sleeping, that. you're a fan. <laughs> yeah. How do you do it? I cool people down. <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, but well, that's it for today. I hope you had a great time with us talking about the hate plates. Jesse, is there anything you want to say before we sign off? Oh, goodbye. Okay, nice. and, and Corey, mm-hmm. anything you want to say? Um, uh, no. Okay. Well, thanks, gang. Have a good night, ranters, and we'll see you next week. Bye.